everyone. This is Solom Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds. And I'm your co-host, Bart Cruz. And this is a Solom podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, we're excited to have poet Aaliyah Peaster on the podcast. Aaliyah writes poetry and creative nonfiction that meditate on embodied spirituality, grief, and delight. She lives in Orange County, where she practices faith in an Anglican Catholic community, meets with good friends over coffee, and takes long walks through her old tree-lined suburban neighborhood. She is interested in the imagination, memory, desire, and how they come to bear on spiritual formation. Aaliyah's writing has been featured in Ecstasis, The Curator, Solemn Journal, Art for the Isolated, and Biola University's Lent and Advent projects. You can find more of her work on her website, for the sake of sharing.com, and on your Instagram at for the sake of sharing. More information will be provided in the show notes, as well as a link to our contributor page on the Solom website if you want to find out more about her. So, Leah, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on the Solom podcast. Hi, I'm excited to be here. All right, great. So, um, tell us, when did your love of poetry begin? Uh, were you young, or was it kind of a gradual thing? And uh, also, when did you start to find that you had like an orientation towards writing poetry? So the answer to both questions is fourth grade. <laughs> um, I had a teacher named Mrs. Fuller who put together a a long unit of uh, poetry reading and writing and study for us little nine and ten year olds, and I just like fell absolutely head over heels in love with Emily Dickinson. In that process, there was this beautiful paperback poetry for children copy of her work that had these great illustrations. Um, I, I should find it and uh, send you the, the editor, but um, I just started reading her work a lot in, at that age and found myself, I, I was kind of a weird kid. I would like sit in, in the gardens and read during recess instead of playing tetherball with all the other kids. And so after that happened, I would like sit in the gardens and read Emily Dickinson and then write my own poems about lizards and roses and such things. And um, so that's kind of where it started. And it's my love for poetry has continued from that. Uh, I've written it with varying degrees of commitment oops, in the years since then, but have sort of delved into the practice in the last three years with particular commitment and consistency, so. You know, now that uh, you mentioned it, um, it, the, your poem is sent in ecstasis, the spacing of it and the style, well, except for the darkness, uh, it, it's not, it, it's quite a bit like Dickinson's almost. Did you take a lot of inspiration from her in that? I think so. Well. Yeah, that poem, I know we're going to talk about that poem at some point. I, um, I'm looking at it now. I think that the big thing with that one is the, the M dashes. <laughs> Emily Dickinson uses M dashes like crazy in her work. It's just all over the place. Anytime she wants any kind of pause between anything, she'll usually use an M dash instead of other punctuation. And I find I, uh, about a year ago, I set out to read all of her poems and then didn't finish, but I will someday. <laughs> but I think that as I was um, 
working on sort of finding my own voice in that season, I, I found myself very comfortable with M dashes. And so, uh, yes, uh, to some extent. And I think also come to think of it, she's very committed to, she, she writes with great, um, attention to the natural world and often prioritizes vivid images and other sort of, um, yeah, sort of evokes that with great intensity in her work. And I've been finding myself resonating a lot more with poets like that in the last few years, trying to sort of, if I can give you an image um, and then put something into conversation with it, that will probably teach me more as a poet, but also draw something out of the reader more effectively than just like explaining something. And so I found um, this, Ascent is a poem that I had worked on for a few years and then finally put it into this form and um, that helped me to sort of just really like with great detail evoke the feeling of hiking <laughs> instead of um, trying to explain what I was thinking, what I wanted it to mean. It sort of started to mean that on its own. Awesome, yeah, thanks so much for that. <clears throat> um, so you told us you transitioned from sort of like a lifelong evangelicalism, um, sort of into the Anglican Catholic tradition. Um, what inspired that change? And in particularly, how has that affected, um, you know, any way you write poetry or, uh, maybe your approach to literature, even just in general, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I grew up EV free and um, really do have a lot of respect for the church I grew up in. Actually, I had a great youth group and uh, I think I, I learned a value for scripture and for um, really attending to sort of the richness of God's word in that space, but found in college, I was attending a large evangelical church near uh, my university and I was already sort of in Bible school and um, study like reading a lot for uh, my major and for an honors program I did and um, found that I would go to these services where uh, the primary, the bulk of the service was like an hour lecture and I was already really tired and I would sort of sit there and <laughs> start to doze off and be like, no, you're in church, you can't fall asleep. Um, not because they were bad sermons, but just partially because that part of my brain was so tired. Um, and so, but also uh, found like, it was hard to get connected at that church because it was so big and um that the summer after my first year of college, I did a, a summer program in Cambridge and in uh, Cambridge, UK. And we went to a lot of even songs, which is a long Anglican tradition that is sort of taken root in these large university towns because they all have big, beautiful old chapels and each chapel has a choir. And they, um, most of them will do like once a week, twice a week, but some of them will do every day. They'll do even song, which is evening prayer, but sung because, and, and that sort of comes from like the days when every town had a parish church and people couldn't read. So they would go to church for morning and evening prayer, it would open and close their day. And, um, 
things would be chanted. And I found those services so beautiful. I was just transfixed by them. And I remember thinking, oh, these prayers, they're so poetic. I want to get them into my body um, through the practice of them. And so uh, that thought didn't leave me. And um, I went back to college, stayed at the same church for a year. And then the following year transitioned to an Anglican church in um, Newport Beach, St. Matthew's and found that, um, well, I very quickly felt at home in that space, but also just, it spoke to um, what I found to be a growing interest in sort of the aesthetic goodness of faith, um, that we had a beautiful building and we had beautiful vestments and beautiful candles and, um, and the liturgies were were written beautifully, and um, I was I think I was just like on a sort of subconscious level really drawn to that. But also, when you go to a liturgical service, there's a sermon, but it's usually about 20 minutes, and so your mind is being engaged, but your body is being engaged through the whole service as well. You're sort of being invited into corporate prayer, and it's seen as a service of prayer, like you're gathering to pray together um, and to pray through the service and to pray through over time and repeated years of that practice through the church year. Um, and so, yeah, I was just, I think the poet in me was like, yes, repetition, <laughs> beautiful language, beauty, I want it. Uh, and over time, I've stayed in part because it's just a really good church and we have really good ministers, but also because um, there's a, an immense grace in being able to return to the same thing every week and try again, <laughs> instead of needing to feel like you have to do it right every Sunday. Um, and that's kind of, that's how God meets us, right? He comes to us and, and is just there and we keep trying to meet him when he comes. And so it's given me a lot of practice in that. Um, you, the second part of your question was how that has affected my writing. Right, yeah, has that yeah. Um, affected your, your approach to poetry in particular, but also, you know, to literature in general. And yeah. by the way, I love that you have been, um, that you're at an Anglican church in the past two years, I have um, grown to love and appreciate the Anglican tradition and, you know, morning and evening, evening prayer, all of that. It's, yeah. I love doing that. And I, I can totally, um, yeah, I, I, I hear it when, um, when you speak about it, it's like, oh, that totally was my experience as well. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> back, yeah, to the, uh, back to the question. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, I, if you think about it too, like the first, so I've been at this church for five years, the, the first three, I definitely didn't do morning and evening prayer. <laughs> I just sort of like haltingly tried them every now and then. Um, but, you know, being able to stay over a long period of time and then the church has recently figured out, oh, we could do this, you know, through video conferencing and everyone could be there. It doesn't just have to be this solitary practice, which is the intention of morning and evening prayer. Um, and that's really helped too, to be like, oh, I'm touching base with my community every every day, twice a day when I go to pray. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, so there are, I think there's a lot of ways that it's affected my writing. I think it's hard to quantify some of them, but, um, it's interesting that the daily offices have come up already, the idea of morning and evening prayer, and then even just returning to the same service for mass every Sunday, um, and then the same seasons every year. So you're doing Lent and Advent and Trinity. And um, 
epiphany and all these yeah there's the whole list uh I think one of the big things for me in the last couple of years has been realizing if I'm going to write, it's going to be a lifelong practice that I need to do because I love it. Not because this is something that I'm going to be like, definitely going to be good at. Um, I hope I'm good at it. You know, like it, and practice usually hones your skill, but um, that idea of doing prayer as practice and as sort of daily returning, you know, the idea of repentance is turning back, right? Um, I have I have tried to apply that to my writing rhythms. So instead of saying, and, and the best advice I've gotten about writing over the last couple of years from anyone who writes is, and who is successful at it even, is just have a practice. Like go back, even if it's just 15 minutes. And even if you don't write anything in those 15 minutes, sit there for 15 minutes and try to think of something <laughs> and the boredom will probably give bear fruit. Um, and especially when, you know, I work full time and I have a lot of other commitments. And as that is sort of also the substance of my, my adult growing adult life, um, I find that I, I there's, there's, humility and grace and um consistency and just saying you just got to find some time today to write uh so there's that so there's two other thoughts that i had about this question um one is that the importance in the anglican tradition the body is takes sort of not center stage but is important in a way that it wasn't in my um, evangelical upbringing so um in this church space i've been invited to think about like uh your relational histories and how those get written into your body um, or um, and and what that means for so like something like fasting so we're in Lent right now and I've given up sweets and I really love chocolate <laughs> and so <laughs> it's hard <laughs> but um, when I really want chocolate and my body is telling me you really want chocolate um, that's seen not as you failed at your fast it's okay let's think about what chocolate has come to like medicate for you or what does that you know how do you how is your body telling you that there's a, a loss here or a lack or a sin that you need to see that you couldn't see before um and so and then even just in in the mass you're standing you're kneeling you're sitting you're singing you're praying together you're speaking together um so the body is engaged in prayer in a way that um i find quite liberating and and I has really helped me to that and some advice from good poets has helped me to think, okay, where's my body in my writing? Where's the body of the person I'm talking to or the bird that I'm writing about or whatever it might be. Um, and we often experience and receive emotions in, in writing through the ways that the senses are engaged. So if I, I'm trying to do that as a writer, then I need to be sensitive to my own body in my prayer practice and in the ways that I interact with others. Um, so a, a church tradition that's open to that and interested in the wisdom that the body brings to the table has been really, I don't know, it's just been rich and it's been helpful to um, start paying attention to that more intentionally. Um, and then the second thing is, is a little bit more like details kind of fun, but uh, there's a lot to work with in the Anglican tradition. So if you're looking for an image <laughs> or you're looking for, I don't know, like uh, 
like if I want to write a poem about the Eucharist and the wafer um, and I see an egret, a snowy egret flying, I'm like, they're both white. Okay, let's do something here. <laughs> you can make weirder connections and sort of um, invoke that kind of, yeah, I don't know. Like I found myself writing a lot of poems like that over the last five years, sort of saying, okay, you know, how do I, or I'm working on an, an ode to Brussels sprouts right now that is kind of in shambles, but um, like, I'm, I'm curious about, I have I had the line 10 Brussels sprouts roll onto my counter kind of that's paraphrasing in the poem um and I want it to be about sort of like how our bodies return us to ourselves through things like slicing Brussels sprouts um but you know in the Anglican tradition people aren't afraid of rosaries and I just bought a 10 decade a single decade rosary uh which is 10 beads instead of 100 and I haven't really done a good job of using it yet, but um, I'm almost thinking, oh, what if I try to make the Brussels sprouts, like the beads of a rosary? <laughs> like how do I, maybe there's something there. And that might be overburdening the poem, but it also might be, it might open it up in a new way. Uh, so I find that there's a lot of, there's imagery and practices and saints and history and even language that is sort of written into the tradition of Anglicanism that, um I can use when I'm writing and I find that uh exciting and interesting and um it yeah yeah well um that that was that was great and uh you know I, I can also tell you that all of us have an abusive relationship with chocolate so we're, we're right there with you I um, just had a Nutella sandwich <laughs> I'm guilty <laughs> A Nutella sandwich. <laughs> yeah, a Nutella sandwich. <laughs> Respect that. <laughs> I, I thought you were on keto, Bart. <laughs> really Not funny. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. That again, that was great. Um, and I, I love what you said about uh, internalizing liturgy, um, making it like part of your body. I've, I've never heard it put that way before. That's really profound. Um, and the other thing with trying liturgy again. Um, I, I really like that. I've never, I've never viewed it that way um, because, you know, a lot of us as, you know, more, more in the evangelical culture, we would kind of, I don't think we'd be down with that, you know, uh, just the repetition and, you know, we, we could, we could start to feel that gets kind of dry. Um, and do you, do you feel that um, that's kind of the wrong way to look at it? I mean, there's a real danger of that, right? That's um, actually something that uh, our, our Bishop, Bishop Scarlet, he's a great Bishop name, talks about <laughs> a lot is, you know, liturgy, people who do liturgy are often tempted to, to worship the liturgy, to be obsessed with that and not, um, and not have a living practice of it. And so obviously there's a danger to that. I, I found though that, you know, my, I have plenty of friends and family in the evangelical tradition too, and, and other sort of radiating traditions around it and they're also tempted to legalism it's just harder to spot <laughs> um so i think i hope that i and uh as i continue in this tradition will remain sort of like humble before it i don't think that i don't think that it's a solution to um anything everything can become a vice uh because we're people. <laughs> but uh, I think that when approached well and practiced well, it's an invitation to humility and to recognizing my own limited 
body and my limited attention and the fact that it's probably not going to sink in until I've done it for three years. Um, and that's okay. And that also allows me to be much more patient with the practice of prayer, which is a lifelong thing that's, um, yeah, it, it, it requires practice and it requires returning. And if I'm practicing that in a corporate space as well, then it's easier to practice in my own personal prayer. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and kind of piggybacking off what you were talking about, uh, you br very briefly mentioned like your body internalizing relationships that you, that you have and stuff like that. It reminds me um, about uh, neuroplasticity and uh, how there's a saying in psychology that uh, the body keeps the score. It's a title of a book too. Um, and that, that came up for me too, as I was thinking like, um, you know, the spirit in the way it kind of keeps the score too. Um, and uh, I, th I think that Anglicanism and liturgy really lends itself to that um, as opposed to just showing up and, you know, singing, singing and then sitting down and listening to a pastor for 40 minutes. Yeah. Well, it's a tradition that's sensitive to the fact that the body and the spirit are knit together, right? So there's, if your trauma or your, you know, um, mental health or whatever else is deeply, I mean, if one has anxiety, then one knows that something that is potentially, that is intensively related to the spirit is also has a heavy effect on the body, right? If I'm, if I'm anxious, then my hands are shaking or uh, my heart is beating really fast, right? Um, and it might be because of a spiritual fear or a relational something or other, right? But it's, it's expressed by the body. Um, and yeah, I, it's interesting because I've been, I've been thinking about things like trauma as well in the last couple of years. And, and the, we actually talked about it in a class I'm doing at my church too. We got to read a couple articles on, on trauma and spirituality. And um, I think that's something that I've found helpful is that that, that tradition does lend itself pretty easily to that conversation. Um, because a lot of what you have to do to overcome something like an anxiety response is just keep going back um, and be kind to yourself, <laughs> but keep returning, um, which, yeah, uh, is the same with prayer, like, right? Like if my body can learn that at the same time every day I'll be praying, then it will feel safe when I go in to pray and my spirit can then engage with prayer more effectively. Um, it's, it's, I've also been practicing contemplative prayer in the last year uh and that's something that's connected deeply to the breath right which is a physical experience as well you're you're breathing these prayers um in order to help the the noise of the conscious mind sort of quiet um and yeah just that like my prayer grows as i'm able to quiet my body in it it's not just an intellectual or spiritual process it's in fact um deeper than all of the above right and in order to access the, the deepness of prayer i kind of have to quiet my body and my mind and my feelings in order to um sort of like find the presence of god as he makes himself known to me yeah yeah you've really really touched on um and explained well just how uh the physical touches touches us so deeply spiritually 
And I think we, we often do neglect that in evangelicalism because we're just so hard against anything that could seem materialistic or anything like that. And uh, it, you're not being afraid of rosaries. I'm sure that a bunch of Calvinists just tore their robes at that. It's um, funny, I posted about it on my Instagram recently and I was like, oh, some people are not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, but. Oh, hey, you know, you, you can't please everybody. Um, so that, that leads into the next question of um, what do you think are the primary differences in the ways that evangelicals and other Protestants or Catholics just approach art? That is a great question. Uh, you know, my first thought when I read this question, I took an art history class in high school. And one of the historical things that's interesting is when the Reformation occurred, um, part of the way the Catholic Church sought to part of its reform, its own reformation in response to the reformation, which there was sort of like the Catholic church did sort of collect itself and say, oh man, yeah, we do need to reform. And they, they tried. And then um, one of the ways that they tried to keep people engaged in that tradition after everything started to splinter was to revamp their artistic, the, sort of their arts program. <laughs> they like started hiring people to like make statues and sort of paint things in churches and, um, and I think what's interesting is sort of the complementary thing that was happening in in the Protestant Reformation is that a lot of folks were sort of saying, we got to do away with all of this stuff. Like every, it was sort of like a second iconoclasm, right? They were sort of like, all of the, all of the religious art is bad. Let's get rid of it. Um, that wasn't universally true. It was probably more the Calvinist side of things that was doing that. But um, that's worth noting just because I think that any conversation that we have about art between sort of liturgical spaces and Protestant spaces down the, down the stream um, ultimately traces back to that moment of fracture, right? There was this big divide that occurred and this big fight that was happening. And two people, two sides took very different approaches to art. Um, but right now, I think, um, Yeah, it, I mean, one of the things that's really lovely about practicing in a, a, a liturgical tradition is that you have days dedicated to moments of great grief um, and seasons of it, and even to seasons of penitence and sorrow. And so much of the human condition is mar marked by those things. Like, we must also rejoice and find delight in our faith, but... Um, I, th I find that when evangelical art bothers me, it's because it's trying too hard to convert by telling a story about happiness. Um, by saying like, if you do this thing, you'll be happy or everything will be solved or, um, and often that makes it sort of tepid. It doesn't end up being everything it could be. Not all evangelicals are making art like that, but I think that in, in sort of the church spaces I inhabited growing up that tend to be more common. Um, and it's also very concerned with being safe where people are wearing the right clothes or they're, um, you know, not saying bad words or you know, they're doing whatever it might be that's, that uh, it's, it tends to be sort of self-consciously Christian. Um, whereas when I've found folks who are making art sort of on the fringes of evangelicalism or who are doing it from liturgical traditions of some kind, they seem to be more comfortable with things like grief and sort of the rough edges of the human condition. And they're willing to look more directly at that in their work and sort of engage with it and integrate it into um, 
integrate it fully as itself into the story of the gospel, where the gospel remains the good news, but it doesn't eclipse the reality of our suffering, which remains true always. Um, I think also like the presence of imagery in worship is very different. So um, like at the churches, I, I, the church I grew up in and then the churches that, um, AV Free Church that I attended before I switched to Anglicanism, there weren't really any like beautiful images in the spaces. Um, and the spaces weren't very beautiful. They were usually sort of warehouse-esque <laughs> and um, you were supposed to be engaging with your mind and maybe a little bit with your feelings in, in that space, in the church space. Whereas um, at St. Matt's we have, you know, there's a stained glass window and there's statues uh, sort of, it's, ours is like pretty minimalist, the style, but um, there's some, you know, religious statues around the church and the space itself is designed with the intention of being beautiful and the way it filters light in and everything and uh, the vestments are beautiful. And so th there's this idea of, like I find when I go to pray, it helps me to have beauty to look at. Um, and I think that a big difference between sort of low church Protestants and high church liturgical folks is that low church Protestants are really nervous about that. They're like, don't worship the image. <laughs> it's like, well, no, actually just like reminds me, you know, if I'm meditating on the Annunciation, it really helps me to have an image of the Annunciation in front of me so that I can think about it. Um, uh, so that my, my eyes can engage in that process of meditation instead of it just being my brain. Because my brain is so easily distractible. This image can help recall my attention to this thing. Uh, and, and if I'm creating spaces that are supposed to be conducive to prayer where my body recognizes that prayer will happen here, right? It helps me to have some images that will help me to engage in that process or um, a poem I can meditate on or, um, because then like some subconscious part of me starts to recognize that too. And I think, yeah, again, I think it's a difference of fear. Like my experience with liturgical churches is they're not afraid of our need for that. Um, whereas, um, the Protestant churches I've inhabited are kind of nervous about it. They don't want to admit that maybe it would be helpful, even if it seems kind of like woo, <laughs> sort of Catholic or whatever. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts in response? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've wrestled with the whole culture of um, like, like just take an evangelical movie. I don't know. I mean, God's not dead, something, uh, any of the pure flicks stuff. I have a love-hate relationship with it, you know. Um, I think that they do have substance and the aim is more directed toward worship. Um, but I'm not sure that by forsaking good art form that they're going to achieve that. Mm. Um, and I mean, I really love what you said about like trying to convert through art and how everything kind of has a happy ending, you yeah. know. and um, I mean, I, 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 I get, I get the motivation, you know, I, I understand that they're, that they're trying to promote hope and they're just trying to give people who feel downtrodden every day, just something nice, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but do you think that that kind of neglects the harsh realities in like, like by trying to provide some escape from it, do you think that it's actually uh, doing a disservice to its viewers? Um, 
Yeah, I do. I think that, um, I mean, I, I grew up watching a lot of those movies and there, I'm sure there is merit in them, but I, I think that as I've grown older, so I, one way you could articulate it is that a lot of those films try to convert by presenting very carefully constructed either moral systems or um, intellectual explications of the gospel. Um, and I just have started to believe that you don't convert people by convincing them of moral things or intellectual systems. Um, I think it's a matter of relationship and the affections and the imagination. And so if I'm making art with the intention of convincing someone of that I'm right about everything, I'm going to alienate the people who need it most because it's not interested in them. It's interested in me being right. Whereas if I make a film or a, a book or a movie that's honest about the human experience um, and how difficult it is to have faith in the midst of it, then I, I'm drawing someone into a relationship with with my questioning, right? And I'm saying, here, you're welcome in this with me. It's a mess, I don't know, but it can be beautiful too, right? Um, and yeah, I think, I think honest presence with the art itself and honest presence with the people, with the audience that you're thinking about uh, is always going to be more effective because it's, it's attending to them too, right? It's attending to who these people are and what they're experiencing in a way that's deeply relational. And I mean, I don't know, if I was gonna be converted to something, I think I'd be more likely to be converted by someone who'd taken the time to become someone and to make things that I trust and that I want to be with. Um, but also there's that line in um, Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, where I, I can't remember it precisely, it's been a while since I read it, but he, he writes about, I think he like, offhandedly buys a copy of a George MacDonald novel before getting on a train to go somewhere. And he starts reading it and just can't put it down. And then he just becomes obsessed with George MacDonald. And he says something about like, that was a seminal moment in my faith walk because his work baptized my imagination. That's the phrase he uses. Um, and that opened me to Christ. And um, I think that's so interesting. I haven't read MacDonald's novels, but he writes, as far as I'm aware, like really weird fantasy novels. <laughs> He's not writing sort of like polemic, you know, uh, gospel tracts. He's writing like the spirit at the back of the North Wind did this thing and it was scary. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and so I think that has stuck with me, um, that idea that if the imagination can be quote unquote baptized, then we're getting somewhere, right? Because we're, we're, it's, it's going to be desire that draws me to Christ, not, I don't know, in my experience, not necessarily my thinking brain, which gets very caught in its own tangles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and there is, um, I, I do think that evangelical movies are improving, uh, just as a side note, lest anyone think that I'm against them. <laughs> um, like, I, uh, I think the case for Christ uh, did a pretty good job um, and there's also a movie called an interview with God that's on Netflix mm -hmm. and character development. Wow. You know, um, that's a new thing, but we're, uh, you know, I, I think that we are, we are learning from past mistakes. So there, there's, um, hope springs eternal. Yes. <laughs> so <clears throat> let's, uh, shift the, 
shift gears here a little bit. Um, and you did allude to this, um, you know, before when we were talking about, you know, now you're uh, sort of entering into Anglicanism and sort of um, embracing this embodied liturgical space and how that affects your writing. But um, uh, you can go maybe say more of that about that, or you can um, talk about your writing process more generally. So uh, yeah, we're just wondering what, what does your writing process look like and how, um, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, uh, I've been trying over the last year and a half to establish a daily rhythm of just getting a few minutes in every day. Um, so sometimes that's like half an hour, sometimes it's 10 minutes, but uh, yeah, I try to for some period of time every, hopefully every morning, sit down with my writing and make some kind of dint in it. Um, this takes different forms. Um, Right now I'm trying really hard to edit stuff because I've drafted a lot in the last year and I haven't done a lot of revision. Um, and there's pieces with some good potential. So revision is its own beast. I'm still getting my hands around that process, but um, so that's one thing. Uh, something that has helped me produce a lot of writing is that um, twice last year, I did a month of writing a poem every day. And uh, I did this for April, National Poetry Month, which is coming up, and for Inktober. And the great thing about that is that you have to just sit down and say, you just have to write five lines. They can be terrible, but you have to write them. And I've written poems that I love and would never have written, uh, but for that process. So that is something that I have done. Uh, yeah, and then when it comes to revision, um, usually what that looks like is I have a draft and I have a big moleskin notebook and I write it in pencil and make notes and then I rewrite it in pencil, <laughs> like change stuff while I'm rewriting it. Um, and then if I need to like research something, I'll research something. And like, I'm working on one about ladybugs right now. And I just looked up the Wikipedia for ladybug and was like, I don't know what'll be here for me. And then it was like, ladybugs are called ladybugs because they were associated with the Virgin Mary in Christian tradition. And I was like, what? So, so that's- Wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's such awesome. an awesome yeah. fact about them. Isn't that so great? Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so I'll like rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it in pencil until I'm like, I think this is kind of working. And then I'll type it up and I'll start making changes. I'll show it to people. Um, a big part of my writing process in the last couple of years has actually been that I have two writing groups, um, especially in this last year. So one of them is a little bit older, but um, I have a group of friends that all meet on my front lawn uh, with masks <laughs> because COVID uh, and a fire and we sit and we share each other's art with each other and we workshop it. So everyone gets like 20 minutes. And if you brought a podcast clip or you brought, you know, um, like one person makes movies and one person does photography and there's a couple of writers and we'll just share our work and sort of say, I think this is working. I don't know if this is working. And it's just helpful to have those eyes on, on the work. And then I have another group, and this will relate to your question about forum later, but um, a friend of mine started a, a Zoom group during COVID tide uh, in which we, from varying parts of the world, <laughs> gather on Zoom a few times a month and share um, 
practicing in form. And that's interesting because that's taught me a lot about revision. I've had a few experiences where I've been like, I have to write this kind of poem and I have to do it in 20 minutes. How can I do this? <laughs> and I'll just take an old poem that's not working and stick it in the form and it just transforms the poem and it feels like it's come home. Um, so I think that that's been really helpful to sort of be like, oh, sometimes revision isn't, I've been, I've been trying to emphasize in my practice of quote unquote editing in the last year, not editing, but revising, which people keep reminding me is revisioning. You're looking at it again. Um, it's a returning to vision and, and seeing it a second time and trying to imagine what it could be in a different way. Um, so uh, yeah, but I think that community aspect has been surprisingly influential for me in the last year. I've been really encouraged by it. And also, um, I just, I learn from other people when I read their work and when they critique my own and it helps me to like expand my imagination whenever I return to my own blank page <laughs> and sort of rethink how I might write a piece. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I, I love that uh, return to vision. Um, and, you know, I've in my own writing classes, I've, I've heard that repeated a lot. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just shows how much I've lost in the in the years afterward. Um, yeah. So, you know, before this, we talked about um, I, I, I think that there is a wave of young evangelical poets that are emerging right now. I think that that's evident from just the sheer number that we see appearing like online. Um, and they just, they seem to kind of come out of the woodwork. Um, now I know that Anglicanism and Catholicism, they've had a pretty persistent art presence over the last hundred years and just, and just really from, from their incipients. But in evangelicalism, I think we've had kind of, um, well, it, it just hasn't been as pronounced in the last century. And I think that we're seeing a lot more of that coming out right now. So do you kind of view yourself as part of that young Christian resurgence of poets or would you probably say you're, you know, par just part of the next generation of, uh, of Christian poets? That is a great question. I, th I think it's interesting because I don't tend to, I realized as I was, I was pondering this question that, um, I've been working pretty hard in my attention to my practice in the last couple of years to not think of myself as being a particular presence in the poetry world in any particular way, because um, I've been trying to approach it as a sort of pilgrimage, if that makes sense. Like I'm on the road and I will walk and the road will come to meet me and it will unfold before me. Um, and if I'm to have a place in the poetry world that will sort of name itself, as I keep persevering in my writerly pilgrimage. Um, so it's interesting because I think, I think that there's just the fact that I've been sort of like practicing that particular attention to my own practice means that I've just sort of eschewed any sort of, I'm part of this wave of things, or I'm part of this movement within the Anglican church, or I'm part of, I'm, I'm just sort of like trying to be in the communities that I'm part of and, and sort of Right. Um, but I think that, you know, having heard this question and sort of started to pay attention, 
um, you're right, there is a, a huge sort of explosion of young people who are really interested in faith and art and where they meet one another and how they complement each other. And um, it seems to me that as young evangelicals are sort of grappling with the recent history of evangelicalism in our culture uh, and country, that they are oftentimes turning to art as a way to to pursue that inquiry and that's fascinating and beautiful <laughs> um, because it means that like art and literature are uniquely capable of facilitating that kind of inquiry um, in a way that other disciplines are not um, but yeah I think I don't tend to think of myself as part of that young wave of people who are Christian poets who are writing, but I hope to be part of the Christian poetry world. Um, I also think that in the last couple of years, something that's been hugely influential is that I've been able to go to two image journal Glenn workshops and um, I've met other young people and actually one of my like writing groups is mostly composed, was started by one of those friends, but um, I also have had the opportunity to meet people who are writing poetry and interested in poetry who are like at totally different stages of life. <laughs> so you know, there's like people who just finished their MFAs, but they're like, you know, their children also just graduated from their undergraduate programs. Um, or I don't know, there's a woman that I met um, who's a, a really wonderful writer who, you know, teaches writing in Pennsylvania and lives in a little apartment and has, you know, shares about it on her social media pages and stuff. And we got to talk on Zoom over this past summer because of that program. And I think that that's been interesting because it's just opened my eyes to this whole community of Christians who really believe in the power of art, who are nowhere, like, they're, in to they're just in totally different times of life than I am. And they, um, have always believed that and have always been seeking that. And I think that's been really helpful and hopeful for me to see is people do build their lives and weave this into it and that that can be a part of the Christian life. Um, and so I think that like, as you've been becoming sensitive to this young wave of poets, um, I've been sort of noticing people who are slightly older than I am who've lived their lives committed to things like poetry and art and uh, have been really excited about that. Um, and sort of what that has done to shape my own attention to my practice and to how one might build a life with art as part of it. So um, yeah, I hope that I've addressed your question. I know it's important to the solemn vision uh, here, but yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that that does. And that's very humble. Um, and, you know, we, we, we definitely appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that, um, I've noticed that the Anglican and Catholic poets that I've seen and that we've actually published, are, they do tend to be older. Um, and I think that that does speak to the continued presence uh, or like importance of art in, in those denominations. And I think with evangelicalism, it's kind of like we, we have a sense that we lost um, our art culture somewhere along the way. Um, and now it's like we're having to rebuild that from the ground up. Um, and I think that that's why you see this kind of explosion of just Christian artists out there, you know, doing what they do. So, yeah. so yeah, that's insightful. I think it's interesting. I mean, I just want to return to the idea, too, that 
like art and literature are somehow uniquely capable of the kind of inquiry that these young Christians are pursuing in their faith um, because they hold disillusion and tension and fear and uncertainty and doubt and still allow faith to continue while that's happening, I think. Because um, in my experience, a lot of the, the young folks that I've known I mean, I went to an evangelical college. So like I, I had a lot of close friends who were like really intelligent thinkers and, and really passionate about faith, but like also had major doubts and frustrations with their history in the church and um, found that art and writing were healing and important ways to pursue their questions. Um, yeah, there's that, you guys might've seen it, but there's that James K. Smith article that's sort of circling the arts and faith space where the title is I'm a philosopher period we can't think our way out of this mess period <laughs> and he basically says sort of I've had a, a turning of my heart in the last few years towards this belief that um it's really worth a read but he, he just sort of says like I think that it's the poets the artists the writers the novelists they're gonna they're gonna help us with the mess that we have to untangle here because they speak to the imagination and they speak to the affections and those are often what are wounded right now um, and they're able to like really explore robust truths without needing to to turn them into ideologies or sort of be polemic with them um and yeah i i'm sort of i find myself resonating with that where i'm like i still really believe in sort of a an important set of the tenets of the faith right like the creed is still true um but somehow we have to explore it and be present with it in a way that holds the fact that there's a lot of wounded people out there who aren't sure about faith, um, but they want to believe. And how do I make art that invites them into the practice of faith without fear, even if they're uncertain? Um, so there's, yeah. I'll also say like, I assumed that all of the like, older folks that I met through the Glen, not all of them are old. <laughs> a lot of them are just like, you know, middle-aged, whatever. But um, I assumed that they would all be Episcopalian actually, <laughs> but I've been surprised or Anglican. And I've been surprised to find that, um, you know, a number of them are actually, there was one woman who I met and spoke with who told me about doing a practice in, in sort of the Ignatius spiritual exercises with a group of friends and and then I was like, oh, what kind of church do you go to? And she goes, oh, I go to a Pentecostal church or something like that. I was like, oh, interesting. So it, what's also interesting to me is noticing how in a lot of these sort of evangelical or Pentecostal or low church spaces that um, sort of high church practices of prayer are filtering their way in. People are interested in sort of the church here or in the Ignatian exercises or whatever it might be um, in those spaces in a way that they haven't been in the past. So I think you're right. There's a sort of, there's, there's a new interest in that, in that space. Yeah, yeah, it, it, we we do. I, I I like my my draw to Anglicanism is it's kind of like I, I look at evangelical culture and I see like rock music, uh, big stadium stuff, you know, um, maybe a young hipster that gets up there to to preach, you know, and it's like what what kind of what kind of like lasting culture do we have? I mean, we're obsessed with being current and it's like, well, that's, that's ultimately denigrating, you know, that's to what, to what we're trying to do. I'm you know? working through, um, the wounded healer by Henry Nowen, mm -hmm. very short book on, on ministry. Uh, but he has a line 
what is it? I'm trying to think how I would summarize it. Where he basically says like churches that try to speak the language of the peer group in order to make people feel welcome will find themselves accidentally putting the pressure of that peer group onto the young people that they're trying to attract. So that they end up like in the same anxious space when they go to church without realizing it because the churches are trying to speak their language. Um, and it's not, it's inadvertent, right? It's not intended to bring that anxiety to that space, but instead of, yeah, it was an interesting critique, I think, of that approach to ministry. Um, right, right, yeah. And, you know, you, you can say like, well, the, the buildings don't really matter. And, you know, ultimately all it is is just facilitating worship. Um, but, I mean, l- look at the lasting impact of places like the Canterbury Cathedral, you know, like where, where is that in, in evangelicalism in America? Like what, what do we have that's, that's like that? Um, I mean, to be fair, it's a very young movement. <laughs> I think it's only like, however, 50, well, it's probably, if we're being generous, like 80 years old. Um, so we haven't had time to come up with that culture yet, really. I think part of it is just that it's, it's a very young practice um, and it has yet to figure out I think, you know, to some extent, the evangelical culture was sort of a reaction against some negative experiences in liturgical spaces. And so, um, you know, in true Protestant Reformation form, it was sort of like, we're against this stuff. (laughs) And then now we're probably in that space where we need to be like, but we're for this. Um, And art is likely to play a big role in that. So around, uh, well, are people around you do you sense um, are they attuned to the um you know um as you as you look around you are people beginning to uh come to this realization of the rather like the importance of art or of literature um and you know we call it a resurgence but you can just call it sort of now that we're putting our eye to it we see what has been going on the whole time um, and what, what do you think is attracting people? What do you think draws them to, towards art, Christian mm-hmm. literary art in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what I found resonates with people is writing an art that speaks to where they are in their struggles with faith. And so I, I have a hard, I haven't really talked to my friends about this sort of resurgence, but I think that like, I am around a lot of young people who are interested in faith and really interested in art and expressing their faith through art well um, and in interesting and compelling ways. So to that extent, I think people are aware that like art is taking a new place in the Christian dialogue right now. Um, and I think that, I'm, I actually find that like things like poetry and art sometimes have a really meaningful role to play in like spiritual formation. So sometimes if I'm having a conversation with someone at, through my church or otherwise, I'm like, oh, you're struggling with this thing. You should read this poem <laughs> and just like keep reading it a bunch of times while you're working on this question with God. Um, and in that kind of space, I think that like something that's really meaningful about a poem or a painting is you don't have to get it right away and you're not supposed to. And even if you do, it's it's ideally written or constructed in such a way that 
it will keep unfolding to you as you keep reading it. And so if you have to struggle with a certain question for a really long time in your faith, um, the poem can become a friend to you. <laughs> and that's lovely, right? Like that's, that is a patient thing. Um, I think that in that respect, it, art and writing that are well done, that have something to do with faith, um, are comforting because they're present with the person engaging with them. And the person can just keep looking at the painting or the poem or the novel and keep finding things there um, while they're walking the pilgrim path <laughs> that it is to be a Christian. Um, yeah. Um, right, and in, in some ways, um, you sort of mentioned the evangelical uh, approach to art is drawing people into um, maybe like a happy or a hopeful or a joyful and somewhat um, very flowery sort of space. But the reality is that even scripture in, invites us into suffering and sort of a chaotic sort of space that becomes this this peaceful space um and yeah to when when you were talking earlier about um sort of gaining people or attracting people um in the evangelical world that was sort of you're not necessarily attracting or converting them you're just winning them over by sort of affirming what they already do or and you're not challenging them to grow and to, to to give themselves over to some maybe new spiritual insight or or uh you know this new thing that's going on in their lives but yeah so i think that that becomes an issue there um yeah, yeah. so any yeah go ahead sorry well yeah and and like well, two thoughts. So one is that, you know, if you're invited to read a poem over and over again as part of your prayer practice, you're being invited into a repetitious practice, right? Which faith is. <laughs> faith is like me getting up in the morning and being like, all right, for 15 minutes, I'm going to pray. <laughs> right? Um, and it's going to be boring. Or, you know, it's not. Maybe it will be really nourishing today. But a lot of times it'll probably be boring and I'll keep practicing it. Or it'll be painful and I'll keep practicing it. Um, and like a story that tells me everything's going to be fine and I don't have to think too hard about faith after I've converted is, is one that doesn't, that eclipses my awareness of that, that part of the Christian faith where I, I'm, I'm actually just every day trying again. <laughs> I'm going back. I'm practicing. Um, yeah, there's this great book called Christian Proficiency by Martin Thornton that I had to read for church. And, um, and his basic idea is like, there'll be some superheroes in the faith, you know, the saints probably, and there'll be some people who are really bad at it. And then most of us are going to be proficient. <laughs> we'll be fine at it. <laughs> you know, like We'll get through. <laughs> um, so how can we strengthen the proficient to be really good at their proficiency in the faith? Um, and a lot of that is just teaching them to practice. Like you just keep going back. Uh, and I think art creates space for that that sort of generosity, right? That's a generous way to think about faith. It allows me to be small and distracted. Um, and if a poem will keep revealing itself to me if I read it every day, then like that is inviting that kind of attention from me towards the art, but also towards my faith. 
Faith is repetition. Yeah, I, I love that. We also find comfort in repetition. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. Comfort, yeah, is, yeah, I'm thinking about comfort. I don't know what to think about it yet, but there's something there, right? Like if my body has learned a rhythm, it feels safe within that rhythm and comforted by it. Uh, and it is good for faith to be comforting. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, both of the poems that you published with us, uh, the 37th year at Bethsaida and the Church of the Nativity, Bethlehem, they're based on passages from the Gospels. Um, how did you find yourself drawn to that approach? Yeah, I think I was at the time that I wrote them thinking about how you write good poetry about the Bible. <laughs> and I found that I resonated a lot with people who did a really good job of taking a moment and really investing in the sensory reality of that moment and then turning it on its head. Um, and I, I don't know that I would say that, I mean, maybe I've done that in these poems, but <laughs> um, I, I think that they were both practices in that sort of attention to scripture. Um, the 37th year at Bethesda, Bethsaida, I don't know exactly how you say it, but um, I wrote that during a Lenten season in which one of my practices was to hike once a week. So I would go down to the beach and go hiking and not pay attention to time and um, just repeat stuff in my head. And I had discovered a, a translation of that passage uh, which I, I did, I don't know that I had ever seen this before, but there are translations that cut this out. And, and I think the ESV is one of them that cuts it out, but there's, um, yeah. So I returned and I ended up returning to the same path every week, but these passages, so some translations include a, a sort of a portion that talks about the angel of the Lord entering the water and sort of stirring it up. And that's when, cause I had just known like people hang out by this pool and they try to touch it sometimes and sometimes the water makes them better. <laughs> and then there was this like strange and beautiful passage that I discovered somehow in that time where it's that the angel of the Lord entered the water. Um, and I thought that was so weird and, and, and beautiful and I wanted to ponder it. And I was also thinking about this idea of like, in order to get well, you have to want to be well, which that passage speaks to, I think, when Jesus heals the, the crippled man. Um, and so that poem is just an attempt to meditate on that, what it would have been like um, to be at that pool um, over all those years and this moment that would have occurred over and over again, anytime the angel of the Lord happened to hit the water as all these bodies would have like surged toward it. Um, and then had to retire back to their, their sort of stuckness in their um, unhealth. And I just thought that was really interesting um, to think about. And I think, yeah, I, I made the title what it is. Cause it, it was interesting to me to think about, um, the passage tells us that the man that Jesus healed was there for 38 years before Jesus healed him. Um, and if you were to think about like in the moments before that happened, he would have still thought that his life would just be repeated attempts to touch the water. Right. Um, and with no help that he would never have managed to do it. But um, so I just think like, I was interested in like the tension of that moment on the cusp of this thing that we always talk about, but that, this man would have had no awareness of. Um, so, 
And then Church in the Nativity, Bethlehem, I think I drafted it around the time that I was trying to work on another nativity poem, which is still kind of a mess a few years ago, <laughs> and that I'm still committed to, but I really wanted to like get into the moment with Mary when if, in that other poem. And I was scrolling Facebook. I've never been to Bethlehem, but I was scrolling Facebook and uh, one of my friends had posted a photograph of the inside of the church in the, the nativity, which is built on the supposed site of the nativity. And it's very ornate. There's lots of stuff in the room. And I just found myself drafting this, this poem at that point. Um, so I thought that was fun, but um, yeah, it was helpful to have the sort of idea of cathedral as a, a unifying image. Awesome. Um, so uh, shifting to another one of your poems, um, your poem Ascent, uh, it was published, you know, with, um, you know, the in ecstasis as and as a very unique structure. Um, so I was, I was just curious if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, do you regularly toy with with form in your poetry and so on? Yeah, so that poem's a contrapuntal poem. I have a friend named Maggie who is part of my, uh, Maggie Swafford, she has an Instagram for her poetry. Um, she's part of my form group and she, so what we do is um, once a month, we all, basically once a month we try a new form and she brought contrapuntals. So when you write a contrapuntal, and I had been familiar with this actually from my choir days in high school where we had a contrapuntal song that we did, I think, I think it was called that, in which one half of the choir would sing something and the other half of the choir would sing something back and it was this call and response song. Um, and so what you do with a poem like this is you read the first column as its own poem, and then you read the second column as its own poem, and then you read them together as one. Um, and some contrapuntals will have like three columns <laughs> or more. Um, I don't know if I can do that yet, but, <laughs> um, but it's really, it's a fascinating and fun challenge to like try to put, uh, yeah, to try to make a good poem and another good poem that are also a good poem together. Um, and I, that's another situation where if it wasn't for the form group, this poem would not have become what it is. But I had been like, I had spent about a year trying to make a certain poem a really good poem and kind of failed to do it, but knew that I really loved two lines. And this came up and I was like, I wonder what would happen if I made it a contrapuntal. And I just spent 20 minutes being like, all right, so let's line it out. And then, um, and they were like, oh, it, it like works. And it just sort of, I mean, I had to edit it after I did that, but it just fell into place. Like it just was like the poem had come home, um, which I think is an interesting thing about writing. You're sort of, I, it's weird. I've had this experience a few times where I'll put a poem in a form or I'll put a poem, you know, I'll revision it in a certain way and it will just, just make itself at home in that form. Um, and and it's like, I've waited for two years and now I know like what this poem is supposed to be. <laughs> like what? Um, so that speaks to a certain kind of patience that's required of the writer, but, um, and also a certain humility, but yeah. So through that form group, I regularly toy with form. I had, I took a class in college where I wrote a sonnet once, two sonnets a week. And that helped me get a sort of sense of sort of formal rhythm in my writing. So I was, I was able to think in meter a little bit more naturally, but um the discipline that form requires is easier for me to do when I have people holding me accountable. <laughs> 
And <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, about once a month, I try out a new form with those friends. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I feel very gypped with my undergrad education now because, you know, we're sitting there practicing anaphoras and you're doing contrapuntals. And oh, Well, yeah. to be fair, I didn't do contrapuntals in undergrad. <laughs> I did it very much post-grad with some great and creative beloved people. So well, maybe, maybe it's asking too much of the undergrads, but <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you were talking about how you find uh, form to be, it's almost kind of liberating for you in a way. Uh, do you do you find that um, form is particularly inspiring when you're writing poetry, or do you kind of just have other avenues of inspiration? That's a great question. I think form I find more inspiring in the revision stage because um, it will sometimes structure and liberate the process of revision in a way that's really helpful. Because um, otherwise, I'm just like there's a bunch of sentences, like, I don't know, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with them? Um, but if I, I know that I have to make X and Y rhyme with each other, and that, like, these lines need to read in a certain way, as do these ones, like, we did uh, palindrome poems recently, that's supposed to read the same way, like, backwards and forwards. Um, and so, you know, like, if I'm having a grammatical snarl here, and I have to fix it here, then I'm gonna have to change what's up there. Like, you kind of know what the problems are when you're revising. Um, as far as like the inception of poems is concerned, I find a lot of inspiration in just like trying to pay attention. Um, I think that the practice of writing a poem a day every now and then is, is really helpful for that sort of being like, okay, I have to write a poem. What am I going to write about? Uh, like the neighbor's cat. Okay. <laughs> just go <laughs> sort of see what happens. Um, so that's really life-giving and helpful. But, um, in the last year I've been trying to, uh, write what I see and where I am. So I've been, you know, pandemic, it's weird. I've been going on a lot of walks in my neighborhood. So I find myself writing about the trees and about like one of my neighbors has a Lady of Guadalupe shrine in their garden or um, like the people that I see or the cats, there's a lot of stray cats. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to, to do that. Uh, I'm working on a poem about an orange. <laughs> I'm trying to like, I'm uh, lately I'm trying to like really invest these physical experiences um, in my poetry uh, and then sort of bring them into conversation with the spiritual. Because um, I want the poem about the orange to be about prayer, spoiler, uh, <laughs> right? But like that's more fun, right? Than sort of being told how to pray in a poem. Uh, if I can give you an image and we can share it. Um, yeah. So that's where a lot of my inspiration comes from at the moment. I think also like the people that I interact with and um, that help me write uh, that have sort of, you know, I've had uh, people I look up to be like, I think this poem should be a sonnet. And I'm like, I think you're right. And I don't want to, <laughs> but, like, but I'll try. <laughs> and so uh, that kind of relationship and attention is helpful too. Awesome. Yeah. So what do you think, um, what do you think is the primary purpose of writing poetry as a Christian? Um, you know, for example, like evangelizing, you know, imitating God's creativity, um, spreading truth or, you know. Mm. Yeah, I think, I, I don't think it's evangelization. That might be unpopular, <laughs> but <laughs> 
<laughs> I find generally, I mean, we talked about this earlier, but um, I actually find art that tries to expressly evangelize uh, kind of boring uh, because I know what it's going to tell me. I want my, I want art to surprise me and to show me new things about the world. Um, and so I think that with regard to poetry, like I think of the poetic vocation as one of, I need to pay attention to myself, to others, to my memories. That's one source of inspiration that I forgot to mention. I've been trying to think of memory as a source of inspiration as well, but, um, but like, what does it mean to live as a human being in relationship with other human, human beings and places and practices? And how do I hospitably open that set of questions to other people so we can share them together? Um, which often involves telling the truth, um, often involves inviting people into the, a shared image or experience. Um, I also think that the poetry that I find most powerful brings me into something and then completely flips it on its head, <laughs> like totally surprises me at some point um, with a, a, an insight or a question or um, a kind of presence that I didn't expect and that reveals something new to me about the world. And so maybe it's also the practice of revelation, um, but uh, yeah. But I, yeah, I think that I find that this is kind of along the lines of what I find inspiring, but that um, the humility of paying attention to and living in the present moment is something that is well practiced in the practice of writing poetry. And I think that that's a big part of what poetry is and should be and what its purpose is, is to induct the writer and the reader into attention um, and presence with what is uh, without fear and with new eyes. I think that's actually very helpful. Um, and you're right, to evangelize you, you already know what you're gonna expect in a poem, um, but to open yourself up and to allow people in, you know, when I read a poem um, like that, that sort of you know, sparks my interest and, and, and I'm curious as to what's going on in this, the, the writing or um, the, the writer's mind. I then want to sort of practice opening myself up like that. And yeah. sort of that invitation is, is so profound because it's not, it's, it's, not, it's not just sort of telling you what to believe, but it's inviting you into this, this, this uh, practice by example. Yeah. And it, and it invites you, it, it invites you into a new love for what is right. Like it's relational. It teaches us to be with where we are and who we are with um, and who we are. Right. Um, if I can be more present with myself then I can give myself to others. Um, yeah. I, we would love it, Aaliyah, if you would share some of your poetry with us, um, namely the ones you published with us and Ascent from Ecstasis. Great, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so let me see here. I have the book with me. Um, so uh, this is the 37th year at Bethesda. And I'll read each title and poem like on their own after I say that, okay. The 37th year at Bethesda. And a certain man was there which had been diseased eight and 30 years, John 5, 5. 
A silken sheet of rustling light darts into the pool and fades, leaving it troubled. The blind and withered scramble to touch it, to be the first. One does. Halted, they retire among fetid odors, moldy pallets and grime that fill the five porches to wait, still murmuring complaints for the moving of the water. Church of the Nativity, Bethlehem. In the Church of the Nativity, dust clots every crevice in every wrought metal orifice. Of course, we cannot comprehend simplicity or discern how we might inhabit land divinity has touched, but worship the land instead. Here is how I think it must have been within the first cathedral. His exhausted mother cradled him. Her skin touched human skin. He wept, God breathed. Okay, and I'll read Ascent now. So again, this is a contrapuntal poem. So the first, first poem I'll read is one column, and then the second is another, and then they will be one together. Ascent. To meet the sea, the question of your smile rising slowly floods my eyes. Always you are gone. I rise to meet the sea. Ascent. I lace up my shoes, shoulder my heavy backpack, walk past dried sage and quail, withered mustard stalks. Hot Pacific skies haunt my skin, like your ghost arms about my waist each time I pause to look for you in forests of late summer mustard plants lining the parched path beneath my aching feet. I want to weep when the mustard shivers and the sea breeze touches my sweat-dampened cheeks. Quail scurry beneath, bareness rattles. Sparrow silhouettes hop from stock to stock. I can only see so far. Pulled forth silently, I crest the hill. Stop, stunned, confronted by diamond bright expanses. The sea fills, floods everything. Everything, air, dirt, skin, breath, sea, crowded with sunlight. Is light a sacrament? It touches the sea as if it is. Round three, Ascent. To meet the sea, I lace up my shoes, shoulder my heavy backpack, walk past dried sage and quail, withered mustard stalks. Hot Pacific skies, the question of your smile haunt my skin, like your ghost arms about my waist each time I pause to look for you in forests of late summer mustard plants, rising slowly, lining the parched path beneath my aching feet. I want to weep when the mustard shivers and the sea breeze touches, floods my sweat-dampened cheeks. Quail scurry beneath, bareness rattles. Sparrow silhouettes hop from stalk to stalk. I can only see so far, my eyes. Pulled forth silently, I crest the hill. Stop, stunned, confronted by diamond bright expanses. The sea fills, floods, always you are gone. Everything, everything, air, dirt, skin, breath, sea, crowded with sunlight. I rise to meet the sea. Is light a sacrament? It touches the sea as if it is. Is that good? You don't look so happy. <laughs> Me? Yeah. 
oh did this you were like this I was like, oh, do I do I need to read it again? We good? I'm good. I just want to make sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> that sounded great. Being awkward. Great. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. this this last poem I'll read is um one that uh, has been printed. So it hasn't technically been published yet, but um printed in what's called Art for the Isolated. So if you look up artforthisolated.org, um it's this amazing initiative that two people I know from Biola slash my church put together where um, they're both artists. And one of them also does some behavioral science work. I think she would call it that. Perhaps she'll forgive me if I don't. Uh, <laughs> but they have put together this massive initiative to put art and poetry into hospitals right now. Um, so the idea is to put these gift objects. So uh, you get a postcard with an art piece on one side and a poem on the other um, into the hands of hospital caregivers and isolated patients because they believe that um, that will really bring meaningful like healing into those spaces. It's really amazing. And they're, they're pairing it with these like studies of the sort of the behavioral and emotional outcomes of their work. So uh, if you keep this part of the interview, <laughs> I encourage everyone listening to go look up Art for the Isolated and check it out. And they've got some really like wonderful people who've put work into this project. But um, this is a poem that I ended up having printed on one of the cards. Uh, so it's called, Accept from my poverty what I have. Accept from my poverty what I have. When light fell through our kitchen window, 4 p.m. midwinter, I was unprepared. From the kitchen table, I watched you while you, humming nothing in particular, stacked clean dishes and moved with a simplicity that transfixed me. You didn't notice, nor did you see how each time you returned a stack of mismatched plates to its proper place, you, dressed in old jeans, humming tunelessly, caught rays of light between your palms. The end. <laughs> that was that was excellent yeah uh, i wish i was that transcendent when i did dishes um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> dishes are i love doing dishes i don't know about you guys it's so satisfying <laughs> i have my first dishwasher ever and i'm, yeah. I'm using that thing yeah. now there's a there's no dishwasher where i live right now and it's like kind of great actually <laughs> it's so meditative <laughs> you sort of like you feel yourself cleaning things yeah love it yeah well <laughs> Yeah, that that was great. Um, Leo, you're you're a wonderful poet, and uh, I see I see just so many great things um, coming for, from you and for you. So, That's very anyway, kind. Uh, so thank you all today for uh, tuning in, um, and we're, we appreciate you being on the ride. So thank you, everyone.